We're back. Welcome to our special film formally mini-series. Friend of the podcast, Sophie Renvari's short films are, as you may or may not have heard, now available for streaming on the Criterion channel. To mark this occasion, we're joining Sophie to record a series of commentary tracks. These feature the writer, director, co-editor, and sometimes star, Sophie herself. Each episode will be synchronized to a specific film available on the Criterion channel. Just have the short film for this commentary ready to go and press play on the movie when you hear a ding. Like that. You don't need to worry about getting the sync too perfect. After the film, we'll have a little bit of extra discussion that isn't bound by the chains of synchronization. Today's commentary is for Still Processing. I think that brings us to the last film we're going to talk about today, which is uh, Still Processing. Shot before in dog years, but finished over a year after, interestingly enough. Yeah. This is, for all the times I've said it came together really quickly, blah, 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 this is not one of them. Although I will say the concept did not change at all from like the initial conception of it to the final edit. Certain things in the edit changed, of course, but generally speaking, the, what I pitched to York to get into the, my MFA is what they got. It just took a lot longer for... Emotional reasons, I guess. Highly understandable ones. Do we need to preface this with anything? I'll just preface it with that I, I made this film during my MFA at York. And the reason I did that was just so I knew I needed the extra sort of headspace and support and time to focus on this project. I knew what I wanted to do, but I knew that I would need some parameters to make myself follow through with it. So that's why I did my master's. And York was like the perfect environment to do that. And I had a very supportive supervisor committee and it really, yeah, it was the perfect environment to make the film. This is definitely the most difficult film I've ever made. So get your copy of the movie ready to start playing. We're going to start in five, four, three, two, one. All right, still processing. This first shot here. Filmed not in Toronto at all, not your hands. Yeah, well, it was an addition that we realized we needed later on for the introduction with the, the letter that my dad wrote. Because I knew that it was going to be bookending the film, but I think I wanted a little bit more context for like what you were looking at zoomed in. But this, yeah, this is my dad's photographs and my dad's writing. And he wrote the letter to me to be included in the film. So it was very much a collaboration in that sense. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know where to begin. This film's interesting because you alluded to that it was very hard to make and it took a long time. And it's the the movie is about you know things that are have been left in a box for a long time. And this movie itself spent a while in a box. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we shot it in twenty eighteen, late twenty eighteen, and it wasn't finished until early twenty twenty took about a year off after finishing the shoot and starting the edit because I didn't think that I was going to be ready to look at the footage and I was really worried that um, I was going to be very disappointed or that it was going to be something too difficult to look at or there was a lot of reasons why I just decided to not look at it which is obviously ironic because my parents like didn't want to look at what was in their box and so it's just this <laughs> passing on of, of not looking in boxes until you're ready. But then I did finally decide to start the edit in about September of 2019. And that was only because I got my friend Khalil 
was also an editor to put an assembly cut together. And then I saw it and thought, okay, there's something here. And so then that's when Will and I started our back and forth again, trying to find, find the flow of the film. And I feel like it came together without too much pain, but I don't, I don't remember. It was pretty challenging on my end, <laughs> this movie. The, the edit? Yeah, it was pretty tricky. I think I had, from the assembly, the initial cut I did, I cut out more than half of what was in that assembly, just in terms of scenes and beats and stuff. And, it was, and that was too much, but I was just really trying to find what was important in the film. Like this scene's an example where I was so scared that we were seeing too much of you crying too soon, Sophie. Just that like the audience didn't have time to go on a journey. And it eventually we put it back in. I think it was you who thought it was important to have that immediate response to the box. I think it partly speaks to how well the overhead shot works in this scene where the photos are all being spread out. But but yeah, and there was lots of stuff like that where I was trying to find the mood of a scene or trying to find the heart of it. And I was just struggling to come up with ideas. And I would just throw ideas that I thought were bad out and just and then you would think they were great and everybody who saw it would think like oh that works really well so which proves how little i know about my own ideas i mean the structure of the film was like scripted so we knew like the, the order of things but it was just about like the fine-tuning of every scene and like making sure that the emotions were calibrated properly but like we knew that it was going to start with the subway and then go to this room and then go to the subway and then go to the so we knew so generally like what the structure was going to be so i think in, in that sense it's the internal structure of the scenes that's really really hard in this film like like just knowing that okay this shot comes after that last shot of you crying and that shot comes out you know it's there's so many options it's a dizzying film to try to edit as far as the macro structure goes, too, a lot of it was worked out months and months in advance, right? We were doing uh, storyboards at around the time we were shooting uh, Norman Norman at York. And I remember going through all the rooms and there are certain like uh, photographic storyboards we have that are almost a one to one match for the final film in the order that the film they come in in the film, which is uh, really interesting. Yeah, yeah, we did do a lot more pre-production for this film than any of the others. Which was necessary for the actual documenting of like the emotional experience was knowing what was going to happen, knowing what the frame was going to look like, knowing where the camera was going to be all ahead of time, like really let the rest of it come together. You can sit in the moment with confidence without having to second guess like, oh, is this being shot right? Oh, is this? Yeah, I need. I mean, I needed to be like as unaware as possible of the camera. So having that preparation was really like crucial. And also being willing to, like, this was one of the few films I've ever worked on where we had room to fail, where, um, like, we reshot that subway scene like six times <laughs> because we kept not being happy with it. Um, and there's other moments where, you know, the scene in which you have your panic attack on the, cell, on the phone, um, we just left ourselves open each night to filming it, where it's like, do you feel in the mood that night? Nope. Let's, let's put it off another night. So there was so much room for uh, you to be in the right headspace and for us to feel good about the scenes. Yes. Yeah. And it was only because it was just the two of us. <laughs> we had the flexibility because we filmed like one scene a day kind of rather than cramming things in. We had 12 shooting days and our average length was like two or three hours. Yeah. Yeah. Which was really great. I want more films like that.
These photos that get cut into were born from the practical need to cut the scene down because it was running so long before <laughs> they were in there. What? That's what? Oh my gosh. That's that's the that's the reason. But so now it's ruined for you viewers. But it feels like it's on purpose. So that's what matters. I think it works so well. Yeah, I mean, this was one that I had to fight for a little bit, keeping the scene. But I'm really glad it stayed. What? Yeah, you were you were thinking that. Oh, I don't know, it's too much. Or are they going to think it? You were worried about it feeling um, phony to the audience, or yeah. Oh, wild. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's hard to imagine the film without it now. The subtitles are a creative element that I, I don't think I've ever really asked why they're there. I've always just accepted it. So um, why are they there? And how did you come to the conclusion that subtitles were a good way to tell this or to give context to this story? I think they do. I always knew there was going to have to be some other layer to the film that was not in the visual. And whether that was voiceover or, you know, text slides or whatever, I thought of a lot of different concepts. And at one point I was considering recording a commentary like this with my therapist watching the film and talking about it um but i ultimately decided that would be very in like just interrupt the entire mood of the film so i thought that the subtitles would be a sort of way that i can kind of be with the viewer it's like i'm sitting next to the viewer and explaining to them like what they're seeing like giving them little details like as if i'm sitting with a friend and i'm like oh this is my brother or oh yeah i'm the youngest of four just so you know or like just little pieces of information that are kind of casual but also really like imbue the meaning of, of what you're seeing and part of the reason I felt like I needed that is because I did a lot of research on personal films and autobiographical work and, and work that I thought was really moving but sometimes ultimately too personal and I didn't have a, a way in so I wanted to make sure that this film if it was going to be seen by other people that they had an access point that they could actually like engage w with what I was going through and what the film is about because otherwise the film ultimately is really just for yourself and I wanted it to be something that people could ha also access including like my family and it needed that extra context I think um because it can be too I don't I don't like to make work that's like alienating just for the sake of um the ambiguity being a little bit more you know there's like there's some more risk to that in some some ways but there's also less it's interesting that the most common criticism I hear about the film that I wholly disagree with is oh uh, why don't we f we we see what happens to your your brothers and I find that uh, to me that's so antithetical to the kind of the point of the film yeah I think um I mean it's only natural people have a curiosity about these things especially with younger people and I think that limitation that I decided along with my parents to not include made the film stronger Try, you know, because it made it more about the actual experience of grief and, and processing grief and not about the specifics because that's ultimately not what I wanted to make a film about.
This was my garbage edit scene because I sent the idea the blackout around this computer and the music in the last scene and or and the music for this scene. Sorry, at the same time, I thought like, oh, this is garbage. And uh, and you said and like you said like this made me cry. And I just it's uh, it speaks to how I don't know how mysterious the whole process of trying to trying to find the heart of a film is and trying to come up with aesthetic ideas to express it. Yeah, I mean, I think there's just, like you said, there was a million options, especially with like the home video footage. We had so much to use, and it could have made a million different films from it. The whole film could have been home video footage. You know, there's so many different modes that the film could have taken shape. Interestingly, though, despite all that, there's only one scene that was cut that we shot, which was you at your laptop in your apartment that never found a home in the film. Everything else is used. Oh, oh, this scene. Um, I want to use this scene as this is the photo, the light table scene. I want to use this as a slightly jumping off point for kind of tying back into the authenticity question, because um, this film, this scene has been singled out occasionally for be looking particularly kind of like polished, even though it's funny, that's just literally the light table lighting it. <laughs> and it's interesting because this is kind of the opposite situation as Pumpkin Movie, where this is a scene that I think is uh, pretty like authentically what I'd call a documentary maybe, but you've chosen not to telegraph, you know, this isn't shot handheld. It's not shot in a way that feels like, oh, you're in a room. Oh, okay. I, we've stumbled upon you here. Um, and, and so it doesn't exude that kind of again aesthetic of authenticity that people expect. And I think that has, that does throw people occasionally. Yeah, because we're not acknowledging the artifice in that particular moment, but like we open the film and we're saying, this is a film, you know, basically. So we're not hiding from it at all, but because of the framing being very intentional and because I'm not addressing the camera and because it is a static frame and cleaner aesthetic, people, yeah, like you said, they don't associate that with like personal confessional type of diaristic filmmaking. So, you know, you have to be open to new associations, I guess, <laughs> which most people are. I mean, I'd say like this film it ultimately has been, you know, shockingly well received. I feel very lucky for the way that people have taken to it. It's the music, too, to some extent where I mean, I wrote the music for this scene before I'd ever seen even a frame of the film or even discussed doing m music for it with you, Sophie. And I just had the image of like someone going into a cave and like meeting ghosts and there was never a thought to like oh well it should communicate like a documentary aesthetic in fact it runs counter to that idea which i love about the score is because i think it takes it away from the doc anything that felt like a documentary before that shifts into like a sort of like temporal space of uh fiction all of a sudden where we're like looking at these photos coming to life and it, it it's very transportive and in, in a way that i wasn't expecting
the scene something that I really felt was directed toward my parents. And ultimately, I had no idea if it would translate to anyone else because it's so personal, this part in particular. You know, you're looking at anyone else's like home video footage or photographs. They're never going to have the same meaning as they do for yourself or someone else's they do for you. But, but I mean, I do think that my dad's photographs are particularly striking. And that was something that he has a real knack for. So I kind of trusted that that was going to be enough to give people an, an entry point, even if they are just like very deeply personal photographs. I talked enough about the music that I did for the film. So I should mention that like Ben's music over the ending of both is like a really good palate cleanser. Like I would not do guitar music over a film, but it, it somehow it, it feels like a bit of a reset after like the usually fairly dour stuff that I tend to do. Yeah, well, it... it this song is something that my dad always said he wanted to use if he made like a in memoriam website for my brothers so it was something that i just did for him and my brother did the cover of it so it was particularly fitting so it was it was definitely collaboration between myself and my dad and my brother in terms of family and my mom of course like just giving her permission to have this film be made at all i find it interesting that the the music that you mentioned the guitar music um it throws us back into the kind of the cave music in the credits which I thought was an interesting decision, right? Like the guitar music does not continue over the credits. There's no kind of, the catharsis kind of ends as soon as the title cards start. Well, there was, I think that little bit of music that's at the end was just like a tale of something that Will had made and we felt like it was good for the credits, right? I left it in by accident. It was there by accident, yeah. And it was the, that was the originally going to be like the main theme for the film and it was almost totally discarded and I just left it over the end of the film by accident and I was going to take it out and you wanted to keep it. Such an emotionally ambivalent decision. Well, it felt, I mean, I, I think it, it was something that I think needed like a little punctuation just like over the credits. It's so weird to th- talk about this film, <laughs> like the construction of it and all that. It's so, it's hard to like look back at it as like, I don't know, this film. I'm so, I'm honestly, I'm, I'm kind of glad that this film ended up just playing digitally <clears throat> and didn't have to do a bunch of Q&As for this film because I think I would have... Uh, that's interesting because you always talked about how you were frustrated that you couldn't show it, that you can go and show it to an audience physically. No, I mean, like, I, I still feel that way. Like, I, I think I still haven't had that experience properly. And it's like, of, of course, I would love to have that at least once. But I'm glad I didn't, like, go to every festival it played because it would probably emotionally scar me. To just, like, be asked the same question again and again about it or, like, have it seen within the context of, like, how many grief themed programs it would be in or whatever you know so no i think it i think it plays best um alone at home on a on a computer from personal experience i can say that i would i've learned to expect the worst from audiences in the context of these films because um, i made that film about the friend of mine who committed suicide and also this was a few years before so processing and uh, it, for whatever reason, got programmed to Port Moody, you know, small film festival. But uh, the uh, the first question I got was someone who like was quite like upset that I hadn't, I didn't spell out what happened to my friend. And the, and it was like one of those, why didn't he, like literally, why didn't you tell us what happened as, as if I owed it to them? So I'm kind of think that <laughs> I, I suspect you're correct. Yes. Yeah. I think it's just, uh, it's something like, I, I, I'm glad that audience has been able to engage with it like online. And it's been so such a relief to have people be so gracious about their response to it for the most part. And I think that's been really helpful for my parents too, honestly. 
just kind of coming to terms with people seeing something that is so painful and difficult for them and then for them to react so positively has, I think, made a really big impact on them. And that was that was honestly like a big part of my impetus for wanting to make the film was sharing this experience and, and then showing my parents like there are people that can relate to this and it, even if they can't, they're going to feel compassion for it because I think they, they really lost sight of that through their experiences and it did that like in a really big way. So I'm really glad that that's the way it turned out. Yeah. But for the most part, I just disassociate from what the film is actually about. Like when I'm tweeting about it, or when I'm talking about it, um, you know, I'm not thinking about the actual content of it. I'm just like, yes, my film's still processing. Like I'm not, I can't always be associating with like the topic because it's just too, it's too heavy. Um, so it, it can feel, it probably looks a little bit strange or detached if I'm just like tweeting or saying things about it that are like silly or something. But I'm just like, I can't constantly be dour about this. Like this is, this is my work and, you know, when I'm watching it or when other people are watching it, that's the experience of it. But I can't constantly be aware of what it's about. It's too much. Is there anything else that we want to cover about still processing that anyone would like to talk about? Because I do want to ask one last question to you, Sophie, once we're done the still processing talk. I just want to say thank you to both of you again, because obviously, you know, I couldn't have made this film without you both. And that's from a collaborative technical side but also emotional support side and it's really such a gift like it's i really i wouldn't i wouldn't have made this film if i didn't meet you both so thank you it's a gift to be trusted by such a like good director and collaborator sophie so thank you i can say the experience of making these films as a body of work like i i genuinely think that if i a couple of these films hadn't come along i might not be shooting movies anymore because uh i know at least a pumpkin movie was such a turning point for how i saw the way forward for me especially you know i've i've had my fair share of negative experiences shooting movies and moments where i'm like am i cut out for this and these projects have been instrumental in keeping me going uh so thank you so much yeah i'm very excited to see how all of this translates into uh future work wink wink that is my next question uh what's next what's next um i so i am writing a scripted feature film right now so that's some that's like where all my time and effort is going towards right now is working on this script and it's really I think a culmination of all of these films that we just talked about and it's going to be a huge challenge and a huge undertaking but I'm really I feel really ready and really excited about it excited to see like what remains from the things that we've learned and what's going to change the scope is a lot larger so here we go yeah it's a long uh, longy <laughs> I look forward to applying the process that we've developed and also building on it. I mean, that's the exciting part for me. Yes, yes, yes. Well, thank you so much for setting aside like a whole, I mean, for those spoiler alert or reveal twist for those of you listening, all these commentaries that we're going to release over the the past six weeks uh, will record in one uh, afternoon. (laughs) Just just like Pumpkin Movie or Norman Norman. Yeah, yeah. We're getting mileage out of the least amount of uh, effort. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> That's what someone said to me once at a film festival about Norman Norman. They said, they said, how does it feel that the film you put the least amount of effort in is having the most success? <laughs> like, I, you, you know that anecdote about Picasso uh, and the napkin? Yeah, the whole like he spent two seconds and it's like, no, no, that'll be like 500 bucks or whatever. It's apocryphal. It took so me years. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, I think unironically, I think he makes he made a good point in that probably untrue apocryphal story, and I think that does apply to something like Norman Norman and all, to all, to all of your work that doesn't foreground its production value. 
It took Norman 18 years to get to be that cute. Exactly. All I can say is that one time Arnold Schwarzenegger was paid a million dollars to do an audio commentary for a film. I think we've stacked up to his efforts uh, at a considerably, considerably reduced budget. Wait, I'm not getting a million dollars for this? Thanks for listening, folks. You can hear the rest of the commentaries on this podcast feed or find them on filmformally.com. Paige Smith is our associate producer, and Amanda Avery is this episode's editor. This podcast was recorded on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. Till next time.